The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. Jews love to eat. Oh, that's not really fair. Everyone loves to eat. In America, there are two entire cable networks devoted entirely to food. But it seems as though in the last several years, kosher keepers are closing the gap with the rest of the world when it comes to variety, availability, and of course, restaurants. Foodie culture has reached Judaism, and we are lucky enough to have one of the biggest names in kosher foodiedom with us this week. Hi, I'm Donnie Klein. I'm the founder of Yeah, That's Kosher, which is a kosher restaurant and travel blog, resource, website, an online community, however you want to call it. Donnie and I will discuss how kosher restaurants can be profitable, how they have evolved over time, the role of kosher organizations, and the effect of the online kosher food world. All right, Donnie, thank you so much for joining me this week. I appreciate it. One of the first uh, people who actually came to my house to record since COVID has started. We've been doing most of these over Zoom, but I'm glad that this is getting that we're getting back to normal. That I could have people over and record in person. Thank so you. Thank you. For yeah. Coming. Thank you for having me. So, Donnie, first a little bit of background about you. Um, I don't need your whole life story. What I'd like to know a little bit about is how did you get into this uh, kosher food world that you're kind of like this driving force behind a lot of online discussion and and online reviews. So it's it's interesting because I started this blog not necessarily to be what it is today. Um, I mostly started it to be a resource strictly for kosher travel. Hmm. Uh, so I would say the year that I got married, um, sorry, the year after I got married, uh, we went on a trip to Scandinavia. Okay. We hit five countries in two weeks. Iceland, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, and Denmark. All right. We missed Norway. Yeah, I was going to say Norway. We <laughs> missed Norway, but we, we, we swapped Estonia in. At the time, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we were doing it completely on like shoestring budget. Estonia is significantly cheaper than <laughs> Norway and has kosher food. Interesting. Yeah. And Norway, not so much. Okay. Um, and, you know, we booked it six months in advance, so we had a lot of time to prepare, uh, research, you know, decide where we're going to stock up on kosher food, where, how much do we need to bring with us, et cetera. What we found out is that a lot of the information that we had done research on at the time was very stale. The internet in 2007, 2008, isn't what it is today. And so you had pieces of information that were just on there for many years, and who knows who was updating it. Or we were looking at travel books, and even the travel books are outdated, especially as it relates to where a shul is or when a market is open, or what kosher restaurants exist. Um, so because we had these trials and tribulations on this trip, I decided there needs to be this kind of living, breathing uh, website where not only me, but other people can contribute you know, Jewish kosher travel-related advice to future travelers in the kosher space. So that's kind of really how it got started. I would say within a year or two after launching, a lot of people were now coming to me for questions and advice about kosher restaurants. Um, so I said, okay. And I started delving into that. And, um, and that kind of led to where it is today, where we give advice and we announce new kosher places. And 
Uh, we have lists of you know, kosher restaurants that are open for Pesach uh, around the world and stuff like that. So it's become this resource for kosher diners and travelers around the world. That's phenomenal. I just want to clarify one, one point in this. You're not uh, vouching for certain hachshirim or things no. like that. You're just saying these are the restaurants that claim to be kosher and you'll list maybe the heksher on it, but it's up to the consumer to determine whether or not that heksher aligns with their with their Correct. standards. Correct. So we will list any Orthodox rabbis hashkacha. Okay. From the you know top of uh, you know the, the most held by hechsherim, uh, we'll, we'll, let's call them OU, OK, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, to some that are single rabbis that are giving hechsherim. Um, that maybe re- rely on some uh, leniencies in, in Kashrus, but are still coming from an Orthodox source. Okay. So the reason that I had you on is really to talk about a lot of the kosher food world. Obviously, that's going to be a tremendously long time. We're not going to touch on everything. Um, but I wanted to start with restaurants. Um, for those of us who have been paying attention to the news recently, um, especially in the light of what has happened post-COVID, everybody kind of knows that restaurants basically operate on super thin margins to sure. begin with. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about how is it possible for those super thin razor, those razor thin margins that restaurants operate under and then add in the cost of kosherus, whether it's kosher food being more expensive or having to have a mashkiach and a heksher. Um, how do kosher restaurants even exist in in this world anywhere let's say outside of israel so i mean it's a loaded question regardless of COVID, right so if you take COVID out of the equation it's a loaded question um but it's a good one and i think that if we break it down to let's say 10 years ago versus today 10 years ago a lot of the kosher world was not necessarily as upscale as what we have in market today you know, you had the kosher delights and lots of pizzerias and and um, more fast food style places. And that was the norm. And there would be the handful of higher end places um, that have higher margins. Right. So it's easier for them to, to make profit. Um, but with the lower end places, it's about volume. Like with any low margin business, it's all about volume. Um, so we're, we're a captive audience. Right, we can only eat at kosher restaurants, and there's only so many. Um, so, you're either going to end up with few options in certain geographical areas because those areas can only justify supporting X number of kosher restaurants. Right. Um, or in places like New York or Miami or LA, you obviously can do more because there's uh, you know significantly higher population, so they can all uh, support higher volumes. Now, if you compare that to today, and when I say 10 plus, 10 years ago, I mean 10 plus, and you go back decades. Um, what we're seeing today is that a large percentage, I don't know, I don't have the exact numbers, but I can tell you that um, a large percentage of kosher restaurants that either exist today or that are opening now, like the new places, are between the mid to upscale. So they're going to be operating on higher margins. Uh, you're not necessarily seeing the what used to be the kosher delight style, fast food style places opening so much anymore. You're really seeing the upscale steakhouses, the omakase sushi places, um, the 
you know, high-end bakeries, etc., mm -hmm. that are by default they're giving you a, a higher-end product, but they're also they also have higher margins as a result. Is that an uh, an attempt to kind of appeal to maybe people who don't exclusively eat kosher? Um, I would say maybe partially. Um, <laughs> I, I think. Listen, I think that any kosher business that wants to do well outside of a very, very, very from residential area, particularly, let's say, Manhattan, they need to bring in other business. They need right. to bring in the non-kosher business, the business crowd, um, where you're going to have people who keep kosher and people who don't keep kosher, and everybody will feel, feel comfortable eating there. Right. Um, I think that's a, a small part of it. I also think that when we're talking about who is this appealing to, let's think about the, the difference between our generation, mine and your generation, right? right. Well, I think I, I I believe I'm an older millennial, right? Yeah, we're in the same boat. <laughs> yeah. So, the our generation, we're kind of sort of near our prime uh, in terms of in terms of earnings, uh, uh, in terms of uh, maybe wealth, um, and even though we've got kids at home and we own property and et cetera, but I bring this up because the millennial generation cares more about experiences than about physical things hmm. than about objects now this is true for the our generation in totality regardless of the jewish community right. we're talking society at large uh we we as a, as a generation care more about experiences that's why travels become really big that's why pesach programs have grown and there's even more of them uh today slash pre-covid than there than there was 10 years prior um and that's why businesses can get away with charging significantly more for uh, a, a dining out experience than they could have right. 10 years ago because the people who are going out to eat a lot, i.e. people within our age cohort, I would say anywhere from like 25 to 50 today, which includes millennials and, and some more outside of that, we are the ones that are caring about those experiences. Right. I, I would also add to that, it's not just is experience versus, I guess for lack of a better word, stuff. Um, it's experiences versus, uh, possessions. I think that our generation tends to be, I, I, I don't want to stereotype us too much, but a little bit more lazy when, let's say, preparing food to bring to work. And, and the fact that we have all of these options out there, it seems a lot easier. Plus, I think that as, as low as salaries might be for our generation, I think that comparatively food prices have not gone up as much meaning that i mean right now the food prices are right, right, astronomical forget forget, yeah. forget uh forget covid covid exclusion let's say before covid because that's when we kind of developed our taste for doing things sure so before that thing food prices let's say a slice of pizza now is three bucks probably more in, 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 in it may be more, more in midtown yeah. 350 350 but 20 30 years ago it was like a dollar it didn't really go up that much in relative in, in, in relation to how much wages have gone up it seems to have gone up equally or maybe even not as much i i don't have the the right inflation to food price data to tell you accurately or not whether that's true right so what i'm saying is that like i think even before covid millennials have decided that you know we'll sacrifice the the, the little extra dollars in order to not have to prepare work food so you said you said lazy i see it as conserving time right you know what? That is actually a better way of putting it. Conserving time. We have long commutes, things like that. But I think that I think that goes back 
to what I was saying before, we value experiences, which is time. Right. Right. Like your stuff is something that like you, you have a possession over, but I'd rather use my time to experience something, whether that's travel or food, uh, restaurant experience, et cetera. So I, I want we let's bring it back to restaurants margins because I want to really nail that down. COVID specifically has been very hard on restaurants in general. Even even uh, as you mentioned, well, more more so outside of the kosher world. But yes, so but but I, yes, I was everybody. Ask, that's what the I was going to ask. Has the the effect on the kosher world been different than the effect on the restaurants outside of the kosher world? So I wanted you to talk about that. Absolutely. Um, if you're looking at any sort of uh, economics uh, or or reports from the the wider society in the United States in particular, but I'm sure that this applies to most other Western nations. Um, restaurants have had a really rough go, particularly because you have a lot of people not going back to work. And even though people are going back to work, they're not going back to work in the same numbers right. that they used to. And frequency. And so, uh, or frequency, right? Like I'm right now, I, I have a corporate job. I only go into the office currently only one day a week. Um, and that's optional. I'm choosing to go in one day a week. I could go in more. I'm not. Um, eventually, I probably will. Uh, I don't know that I'm ever going to go back in five days a week at this stage within my current role. Um, but you, when you trickle that down to non-kosher restaurants, non-kosher restaurants are competing with literally every other non-kosher restaurant. There, you know, There's many, many, many more of them. Whereas within the kosher world, there's a finite amount. Right. right. Granted, our populations are significantly smaller, but we tend to live all on top of each other in clustered areas, and we are a captive audience. So we are uh, we're we're known to support our own communities. Um, we can't eat at the non-kosher restaurants, so we, it's not like we can support their businesses. We're going to support the 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 few bi- the few kosher businesses that are in our Daladamos that are right near us we're going to support right. number one number two and this is something that i wrote about in uh, an article earlier this year about why kosher restaurants didn't close in mass last year and why we're actually seeing uh just right now i i have a list of about 30 kosher restaurants that are opening between new york lakewood miami um and and a few other places and one closing so I have one closing, about 30 opening. Okay. Why, why is that happening in the kosher world? And why are non-kosher places struggling? And my theory is that our society, especially in the from world, is that we socialize around food. And hmm. so the restaurant, especially today, and especially everything that we just talked about in the last 10 minutes, the restaurant is a place where we're getting our entertainment or our socialization. We enjoy the experiences around food, and that's where we're going with our friends. That's where we're going with our families. That's where we're going with our business meetings. Um, not everybody in the in the from world goes to the movies. Some do, some don't. Uh, not everybody in the from world goes to bars or to other uh, forms of entertainment that the rest of the uh, you know non-Jewish world goes to. Restaurants is really that place where we hmm. coalesce around as a as a society you see your friends there you bump into people it's just it's it's a nice experience um so that's something that you know we we did the second that 
uh, that restaurants were no longer doing delivery only last year, and they started opening up for for any sort any form of in store dining. Our community was out right. and, and, and supporting those businesses, and we wanted those experiences. Those are our experiences. Those are our way of going out. Mose Shabbos, people are going out to eat. Right. That's, that's all I did when I was a kid. And as an adult. But when I was in high school, like my yeah. entire Saturday night in the winter was pizza and then basketball, and then maybe back to pizza afterward. Sure. That's, what, that's what my Saturday nights were. Um, and you're right. That, that is that... that it, I guess it became kind of the point where restaurants are now as part of a community, maybe not as much, but they're part of a community the same way that like a shul is, where people get the, that social experience that they would if they go to like, again, we'll go with the food, a kiddish after davening, yep. that they would maybe going out with a group of friends to a pizza store or to a burger place. Right. Like I, I'm, it's, a, it's a great metaphor. I'm not going to the kiddish in my shul because the food is amazing. Right. I'm going because I want to be around my community and I want to socialize with them and I'll nosh and I'll eat, but I'm, that's like, I'm not there because, oh my God, the food's amazing. Yeah. And you could I, take that food home and it won't taste as good because sure. it's not, even if, even if you do the whole Shabbos thing, like if you do like, oh, Shabbos made it taste better. No, no. It's, it's the, the people that you're with yep. made it, made it just a better experience. Now layer on everything that we were just talking about, about the upscaling of kosher restaurants you know that we that we're seeing now in New York and Miami, LA, and Chicago, and Chicago, and cities throughout and everywhere. Not just not limited. just in America either. No, no, Toronto, Montreal, Paris, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. You name it. It's. I it's won't say I won't say London because we don't talk about British food. Uh, <laughs> not London proper. Or like really the. Uh, and by the way, the kosher restaurants in London aren't serving British food. They're serving right. all, all right. the we other went, cuisines. They're we not. Went, we went to Hendon there, and what they call an American slice was interesting. It's a that's what we call a Hawaiian slice. Um, pineapple? It was a pineapple slice. I called it an American slice. That's blasphemous. Yeah. Well, <laughs> all right. Uh, regardless, when we we're, we're thinking about the upscaling of kosher restaurants, they're now destinations. They're now places that are like really cool, right. well designed, with art, with music, with real ambiance, with uh, like like legit ambiance, and it's a place you want to be. Right. Even if you're just going for dessert, like you just want to be there. Now, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of, we, we spoke about this generation, our, our generation, but related to that and related to what we were just talking about now is this online community of food lovers in the From community. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that we as a community use Yelp so much. We don't. We I would don't. say we Dafka do not. But we do have our communities within like uh, that that rate restaurants that give you advice about restaurants sure. so i want you to talk a little bit about those communities and their effects on maybe the differences in how we operate so i think that in the way that the kosher world online rates and reviews places is tricky because you have this notion of can i say something negative about a fellow jew's business right and I've personally struggled with this because I've definitely given negative reviews through my Instagram or Facebook group or what have you. Um, and I've realized that, you know, obviously, like uh, with the following that I have, I think that it's potentially 
uh, good or, and or bad, depending on, on how you're looking at it. Um, and it can have an outsized, uh, you know, influence on how people view a restaurant. And what I've come to terms with is that even if I have a negative experience, unless it's truly, truly, truly awful, um, somebody else might go the same day and have a really great experience. Hmm. And what we're seeing is there are certain Facebook groups and certain online communities where people will very specifically not leave like negative reviews, but they'll say what they liked about a place, but they won't necessarily go into detail on the negatives. And that's kind of where I've been shifting a little bit um, over time, uh, unless it's like a truly horrendous experience. Um, there was a, you know, I'll give an example. There was um, a kosher restaurant that opened up in Brooklyn. Uh, I want to say three to four years ago. Okay. Maybe four. I don't remember exactly what year it was. Um, and they invited me in before they opened to taste a few of their dishes and give them some advice and just give them feedback. Um, and obviously, you know, I take pictures of my food because I'm that guy. And, uh, <laughs> right. Um, I like my, my friends and family know already if they're going out to eat with me that like, I'm that guy that does it. But like, it's funny. I'm not that guy, yeah. but we actually, my wife and I just recently went out to a restaurant on your recommendation and my wife became that, that girl. That, now just, she takes pictures. That, no, just for that one. For some reason, she decided that one we're going to take pictures of. <laughs> Maybe it was your influence what, seeping what down. What restaurant there. was it? Um, it was the Georgian restaurant in Queens. Marani. Marani. Which Marani's I could, excellent. Which yes. I could not remember the name of. Marani is like my number one go-to Queens restaurant. Um, but this particular restaurant, uh, they weren't open yet. And there was so much wrong. Right. There was so much wrong with this place. And it was very clear to me that neither the chef or the restaurant owner knew what they were doing. Mm. Um, I gave them, I, I tried to give them whatever advice I could in my, you know, limited capacity. Um, and, you know, I told them which dishes I liked, what I think needed work. Um, also, their menu was really weird. Like, it clearly needed to be proofread and, and like, just designed properly. Um, and... I never ended up posting the pictures from my meal about that place, particularly because I didn't want to say so many negative things about a place before they opened, right? Mm. They at least give them a chance to, you know, open and get their feet wet. Um, so on their own, they lasted six months. I, I, I think it, the, I think it was pretty clear, like from the general consensus, like it was very clear that they didn't know what they were doing and, and they pretty quickly went out of business. Um, I think it's a struggle for a lot of people, and I, and I personally struggle with it, and I don't think that there's, it's a clear answer. I think I, that, I think it's, on one hand, I think it's very important for me to forewarn people and say, like, right, hey, I was gonna say, it's don't waste, you. yeah, don't waste your money at this place, but then at the same time, like, there's people's money at stake on both sides of the coin, the both the consumer and the business owner, hmm. and um, I'm, I'm generally very pro-consumer. Um, but I'm also sympathetic to, you know, startups and, and, and business owners, especially, you know, the vast majority of these people are small business owners that own one restaurant, not a chain. Um, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to them as well. And I want to see everybody succeed. I know it's inevitable that not everybody will. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's definitely difficult uh, for people to, and not just me, but for people in general to weigh the, that balance. 
do we forewarn our fellow kosher consumers from this place that either has bad food or bad service or whatever um, to their parnasa? Right. Um, and obviously, you know, rabbis are w- weigh in on this and they have a, a pretty clear stake on it. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not a rabbinical authority. So I, I look at it just more from like a, my own, you know, my own morals. So it's funny because I had I've had this exact conversation with somebody, not for this podcast. This was long before the podcast. Who used to review Jewish music for one of the Jewish publications, and her problem was like, what happens if I like listen to an album and like this is just it's bad. It's it's bad music. The, the, there's no flow to the order of the songs. There doesn't seem to be too much thought behind any of the arrangements. There's one or two catchy songs, and and what do you do when you have that? Because we have this concept of Lashon Hara. We have, we have this concept that we, we have to be, you know, sensitive to other people's parnasa. So what do you do? And what she ended up doing, her move was to um, have kind of buzzwords. You know when you go buy a house and it says cozy? So with that... Small. It means small, right. So you don't want to say small, you say cozy. So she had these buzzwords like ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> so ambitious sounds like... like it could be good, but it was like her readers kind of knew what ambitious meant. So I, I probably do that subconsciously, uh, you know, in my Instagram posts where right. I'm talking about places where I'll tell you what I liked and then I'll probably use some of these buzzwords without even realizing it. Right. That, uh, you know, about the things that uh, I would, you know, steer you, steer you, the consumer, away from. Right. Uh, for example, there was a restaurant I went to. The ambiance was fantastic. The drinks were fantastic. Uh, the food needed work. <laughs> and, and like, we all agreed, like, the food needed a lot of work. But we had a fun time. We had a great night independently of the food. It was, like, a really fun experience. We, it was, like, it was great that we were, you know, out with friends. And we would go back on the notion that, like, we just had such a great time there. Um, and, it, and in the hopes that the food got better. Right. Um, also because it was a, a relatively new restaurant. So we want to make sure that this, this, this restaurant uh, gets the opportunity to improve their food situation mm. because then it'll be a killer place, right? Because the ambiance and the, the experience there was actually really cool. Do you tell this to the, the restaurant owner or the chef? Like you, like they, you have a name now. People tell, invite you to if, pre-open. If, if I have an opportunity to, yes. You say, listen, this is great. This is great. This one you need to work on and work on it fast. Yeah, if I have an opportunity to, which means either uh, I, I get to meet the owner or chef or I know the owner or chef um, or they're there, they're right. physically there and I can walk over to them and say, hey, uh, just wanted to give you some feedback based on our experience. I absolutely do that. And I, by the way, I did with this particular restaurant that I was just referring to, I did on the spot. I told both the chef and the owner, like, here's what we liked. Here's what we didn't like. I hope that. How long ago was that? Uh, July oh, okay. or, or August, maybe. And, and that re- whatever that restaurant is, they're, they're open now. and Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a relatively new place, but okay. yes. Great. Um, I want to talk about one more controversial topic. Sure. Um, and then I have a couple of uh, rapid fire questions for you. Cool. Um, controversial topic is kashras. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but that is probably, aside from, you know, labor, the biggest expense um, for kosher restaurants, mm-hmm. there are always stories of 
cashless agencies maybe having maybe being a little bit ter territorial um rabbinic authorities not holding of certain cashless holding is a funny word <laughs> only on a jewish podcast could you say holding in a, in a serious context in that way um not 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 holding of, of a certain cashless in their territory or not giving their stamp of approval on having this other cashless in there uh certain rules that might apply to certain I, I remember there was one rule like we don't we don't serve any restaurants that are open on shabbos even if they're not owned by a jew um right. so and, and by the way and, and i and that that last point is is i think it does a little almost a little bit of, of a disservice because what i see from a lot of consumers who don't necessarily know all the rules around kosher is say oh that place can't be kosher they're open on shabbos right and that to me is is comes from a, a place of ignorance places can be open on Shabbos and be kosher. They have to, you know, there's other hoops they need to jump through, but it's possible. Right. It's not an automatic, nope, this is trafe or this is Your, like, your not favorite non-kosher, not, not specifically kosher chain restaurant that has a kosher, that has kosherus can be open on... Like, Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Dunkin' Donuts. Um, what, what's Bagel the, Boss. What's the one? In, uh, yes, Bagel Boss. The one, the one in LA, uh, the, the coffee shop. Oh, they're actually not kosher anymore. They're not kosher anymore, but they were. They were. Uh, coffee bean. Coffee too. bean. Yeah. So a, a lot of these like chain restaurants that aren't necessarily kosher can be open on Shabbos and have a kosher and have kosherus and, and have a good. A, Absolutely, a good and it's not only limited to the chains. There are smaller places that exactly. that can be kosher and open on Shabbos as well. Shtar mechira, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like there's there are ways to make it work. The fact that there are these blanket rules that are being made, what we're end up doing is like we're making the kosher consumer dumber in a sense because we're removing any of the difficult questions that need to be asked, which I think is really interesting because grow growing up going to yeshiva, the one thing that was ingrained in me is always to ask questions. And that's I think that's like such an integral part of growing up from is that like we're always asking questions and that we're always uh, particularly about halacha but when it comes to kashras it's almost like it's the reverse right it's like we hear a single thing and then we're not asking questions and we're just making assumptions um and i think that i don't i don't have the answers in terms of like what we can do to to turn that around i'm not in a position to, to do that i'm not a rabbinical authority and i will Cons consistently say that I'm not uh, people should not rely on me for halachic answers um, but I, I'm th these these are just trends that I'm seeing you know amongst my my people our community um, so yeah so I, I, I want to also talk about the territorial agencies um, like a local VOD like a local VOD sure. that kind of don't allow other other kosher agencies, maybe the more the national ones, or even a smaller, a smaller local rov to give yep. their hechsher. Now, the thing, the the, the the most common criticism that I've heard about that is people say, well, if you introduce competition that are allowed to give kosher, maybe the prices will go down. If you have one agency that is in, tar in charge of the kosher of that entire neighborhood or an entire it's section, a, it's a monopoly. It's a monopoly. Now, I've spoken to different people in these types of VODs or these types of agencies that kind of have a territory, and they, their response to that is, we make very little on that. We're providing a service. Yeah. Nothing, nothing that we do is 
because we want money. In fact, if you bring in another agency, they'll charge about the same, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, but it's not going to make a huge difference in terms of what the, of, of what the restaurants have to pay. They're doing it as a service to the community. Yes, they're, their mashkichim have to make money and they need to have some operational costs. But for the most part, it's not, they're not charging you anymore. And restaurants have some, like the ones that I've spoken to individually, have kind of concurred with that. So I was wondering about your perspective on, on this. So what I've heard from one or two, you know, the local VODs and like why they want to maintain that sort of quote unquote monopoly is um they want their community to maintain certain standards okay right like that i think i think that that's the the message um and so that when you have this outside or secondary um heksher or or rabbinical authority you're now no longer operating under a single standard there's now multiple standards and it might confuse the consumer um I get that. I, I, I understand that. But I, I, I think that when you have oftentimes arbitrary rules that are not you know, food related that then seep their way into, you know, decisions for what a kosher restaurant can and cannot do. I think the biggest example that we've seen is like, can you have a TV in the restaurant? Right. And that's been a major source of debate for multiple different hachshirim. Um, we've also seen like names of restaurants being forced to change right. because some uh, uh, rabbis or or authorities thought it was inappropriate or whatever that is and forced that to change. Um, and then you, there's a huge consumer backlash as a result because you see that they're like you're now weighing in on things that are not related to you know your scope so to speak. Right. I, I don't. You know, like I'm not in a position to to have a say in this. Um, I I'm I'm not a rabbi. I I'll, I I can I'll say it many times throughout this this podcast, but also you know when I um, talk about kosher restaurants in general, um, I'll, I have my personal opinions in that. Like I'm I guess more of like a free market capitalist, um, so I I like um, I like competition. But I do understand some of the perspectives of of those of those agencies, and I think that when you think about a community, let's say like in Southern Connecticut, where there's only like so many Jews, and for them to have more than one vod would be silly, right? Um, and so it makes sense that there's a single vod and everybody holds by it, and they're the authority. But then when you get into other communities in the New York area where there's just a lot of people that you can justify almost having two standards, right? So you have the super machmir standard and then you have the less machmir standard. Not You can't expect everybody to hold the same way. There we go, holding again. You, you said it all twice in that. Right. <laughs> um, but again, like I know that people would dis will disagree with me on this and, and that's okay and, and that's fine. Ultimately, I have no real say on this. It's just, you know, um, what I think mostly as a consumer, right? Because I'm, I'm, in, I'm in on this as, as a consumer. I, I enjoy going out to eat and I would love to see really top-notch places be certified by Orthodox Rabbanim. So, yeah. Yeah, 
I want to get to my uh, my rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, all right. So, what's a restaurant that we don't have in the kosher world that you think would be very successful? So I'll speak to New York. Speak to New York because that's uh, probably outside of Israel we have the most. Right. Uh, we don't have a kosher Thai place in New York. We might have a place that like has a few Thai dishes. But we don't have a, like a real like a real Thai or, or I'd even throw in Vietnamese. So I grew up in Queens. There was a Thai place that did not last. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I mean, this was this was probably 15 years ago. Maybe our appetites have changed for it. There's two in Los Angeles. Interesting. Um, I remember having Thai in Tel Aviv many years ago, um, but I don't think we've really had like real good like Thai and and or like Vietnamese like. Southeast Asian cuisine in New York. I'm not talking about Chinese or Japanese. I'm talking like it's, it's a completely different thing. I know you mentioned how our tastes have gone kind of gone upscale. Um, would a kosher diner work? Uh, like it's going the other way. Yeah. Um, think of fast food and then and then lower it down a few notches. I I think like location is paramount with with a kosher diner. Um, I know that they they've been tried, particularly in Brooklyn. Right. Um, kosher diners would only work where there's a late night scene or vibe, which is why like, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, we would go out to eat super late at night. I remember going out for bagels and pizza at like two, three o'clock in the morning or for substational also at like one o'clock in the morning. Um, out here, you know, in Long Island, maybe in the five towns. Um, but even then, like the latest places, in the five towns are not open super late. Um, it would need to have a vibe that's, that has... Like where like the community is out late. Uh, I'm not super familiar with how people go out late in like Muncie or Lakewood. If those are places where people are going out for food late at night, maybe. But I, it's hard because like the whole concept of diners is that like you're open late, you're like 24-7, 24-6 in our case, right? Right. That requires a lot of staff, typically a long menu. And we're actually seeing restaurants cut go the other direction, the menu, yeah. right? Cut back. Right. Um, okay. Always something that I thought of. Um, the, I, I was going to ask you this question and I will let you decide whether or not to answer it. Okay. Go to, go to restaurant. You're just in the mood for something good. You want to get something out. The reason I'm allowing you to not answer it is because you have a lot of people that, that look at you and, and say, how come you didn't say my restaurant? So I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the out if you don't want to answer There's, it. Listen, I, I, just because I, I give an answer to this doesn't mean that I won't also really like and recommend other places. All right. Um, the answer I'm going to give is a go-to, meaning I can go here. We're in the New York metropolitan area, so we'll stick, yeah. we'll stick, we'll stick, we'll stick to the, tri, the let's say the tri-state area. Um, Sorry, out of town One people. of my top answers would be chimichurri. Okay. Not only because I live near a couple of them, because uh, <laughs> they, they, they basically created a triangle of restaurants near where I live, um, but also because like, they're priced right. Food is always good. No, I, I don't think I've ever had bad food there. And it's not going to break my wallet every time I go in. Like, there are very expensive places that I enjoy as well. I just can't go there with that same type of frequency. I've, I've enjoyed myself at Chimichurri. I, I've gone and asked them, what's the spiciest level of, of, uh, of, of wings they have? And then I said, okay, can you bump it up? A couple of levels, and they can't. <laughs> I've asked them. I've asked them in each location that I've been to, and I'm like, "What? Just put it a little bit spicier." That if if anybody out there knows anybody more spicy spicier wings than chimichurri, which are very good, 
I'd be very interested in trying. Probably going to need to bring in your own like ghost pepper sauce with you. Right. That's true. <laughs> um, I want you to uh, take a little bit of time to plug your websites and where we could find you online. Sure. So, yeah, that's kosher.com, the main place where you can read articles and content um, and, and subscribe to emails there to make sure that you're getting the newest content up to date. Um, in terms of social media, Instagram right now is the biggest place. Uh, so at any social media channel, just, uh, the username at, yeah, that's kosher. Um, and, uh, that includes Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, um, even YouTube, all of those places. Um, and I'm pretty active cause I, I do work in social media professionally. So I'm, I'm fairly active on, on social media channels, people who, um, have questions and want like fairly quick responses. I'm, I'm usually pretty quick you work in a place where your boss is uh, never going to walk by your desk and say why are you on facebook that's my job yeah sort <laughs> of uh, uh that's a whole separate conversation but yeah um uh, you know i try to get i try to get back to people within a reasonable amount of time um separately and this is something that hopefully can make it into your podcast oh we'll make it uh is uh we are about to launch um an app that some people already have on their phones and they know it as kosher near me. Um, but it's going to be in pro it's going to be rebranded with, yeah, that's kosher. So think, yeah, that's kosher near me. So the kosher near me app is fantastic. It's a great app. Um, I'm partnering with them to make it better. Phenomenal. And it's available on Apple and Android, Apple and Android. Most, you know, a lot of you listening to this, may already have it on your phone. So when the update comes out, you'll just literally click a button, it'll update and you'll see the new branding there. And if you haven't downloaded it yet, download it now. It's a great way to have a, basically a map of kosher restaurants in your pocket. That's phenomenal. And also one thing that was, I think just announced today on day of recording, you're going to be a panelist at the, uh, the annual Jewish food media conference. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think that this conference has been running a bunch of times in the last decade. This is, I think, my third time speaking at this conference. Um, it's happening on Monday, November 8th uh, in Fireside, the Fireside Restaurant in Muncie. It's, it's mostly, the, the, the purpose of this conference is mostly for people that work in kosher media. So that okay. could be um, people who are journalists for newspapers, uh, people who run kosher Instagram accounts, bloggers, cookbook authors, people who create content around the kosher world. That's what this conference hmm. is meant for. All right. And, uh, you can, and where, where can people uh, buy tickets for that? Do you know? Um, I j literally just post that <laughs> to my stories, but that's probably going to be offline when this podcast is live. Um, I don't know the URL off the top of my head. You know what? We'll post it to our social media sure. and... Donnie, you can share it wherever you want. Probably you'll probably find it all over. If you follow Donnie on on uh, Twitter or any of his social medias, you'll probably know where they are. Um, and of course, we'll link to it as well. Um, Donnie, is there anything else you want to leave us with? Um, I'd love for you know people to go out and try things that they haven't tried before. Uh, visit places they haven't visited before. Go travel to places even though kosher food doesn't exist there. Get out of their comfort zone. I think that so many of us in the from community, like we know what we know and like we kind of just like we want to do more of that. And I, I'm trying to encourage people to like a, like a good millennial 
encourage people to experience new things. Um, and if I can do that through what I do with the yeah, That's Kosher, then um, I'm fulfilled. Donna Klein, we've been trying to get this episode recorded since the beginning of this podcast's inception. As a matter of fact, I look back into my notes on, on this particular episode, and we had it scheduled to meet in December of 2019. Wow. For whatever reason, that didn't happen, and then COVID happened, and I'm so glad we were able to do this. Donnie, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, good luck. Thank you for having me, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to do this again when, and discuss more on the kosher restaurant travel world. Absolutely. My thanks to Donnie Klein for joining me this week. I'll pose the same questions to you that I posed to Donnie. What is your favorite underappreciated restaurant, and what type of restaurant do we need in the kosher world? Until next week, Koltov. The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Srelly Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg. Follow us on Facebook at The Jewish Living Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Jewish underscore living. You can also email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.